Well, you know, when you're talking about missions, it is a topic that interests people for different reasons. One, they don't want to hear about human psychology next door, so they're over here. So that might be one, <laughs> one reason. Uh, two, you've been involved in missions, and, and so you're, you're passionate about, about missions. Three, perhaps you're interested in, in missions yourself in, in terms of going at some point in your life, and you, so you're, you're interested in, in hearing more about it and, and hearing a little bit as a church how we, we approach the, the issue and the subject. I shared last week, so let me just a little show of hand. Who was not here last week? Okay, so I've got a handful here who's not here. <laughs> so I, I, last week, I, I, in giving my testimony as it pertains to missions, I kind of give my, my heart's desire explaining you know, why this is really a culmination of, of years of, of thinking through this question about missions and really trying to deal with some of the contradictions that I, I that I experienced that I lived through with statements about what missions is and what it's not what what the role of the church is and what it's not and and how do you how do you make that work in a, a missional context so it's really the fruit of a lot of desire to bring clarity and really the, the desire in bringing clarity is a desire to as a church body identify what we're mandated to do and the whole missional culture there's so many Dynamics are so many pieces that come into play, and I've experienced a number of those pieces, whether it be uh, through my through my parents as a missionary kid and through how they approach missions to later on uh, joining a mission agency and through that candidate school and what it, missions meant to them to go into the church here. The church does have a missionary assistance program. I wasn't the first under the program. The others, though, were, were stateside, so I was the first overseas under the program. So um, maybe... Michael could, I think there's a couple of guys over here who still need maybe copies. So bringing all that together, my desire is, you know, well, what as a church are we mandated to do? That, that has to be primary question that we need to answer. And then with that, ask the, the hard questions. Okay, well, what does that mean in this situation? How do you apply this? And how do you make this work? And Pastor Alley likes to ask a hard question, so he's not here today, but he asked me one last week. Well, I guess, you know, he's saying, well, I guess if we would have said no, you wouldn't have gone. Well, that's, that's not how you, you engage a church. It's not a question the church is, is going to engage and say, well, you're, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, but the church is to affirm the missionary. We, and so there's just a lot of pieces there. How, how does it work? And it's important, too, as, as a church, how do we process things and how do we work through this? So this gives you a little bit of an outline of what we'll be looking at in, in the weeks to come. Uh, last week, we discussed the exclusive nature of the church. And in discussing that, we, we laid out, and, and here's how missions works a lot of times. We see the end product, and we want to back into it and find out how the church fits into it. I want to do it the other way around. I want to understand, okay, what are the parameters? What, what is the church mandated to do? And then how do I make missions work within those parameters? That's a different way of, of thinking through the process because a lot of times in missions we see the end product and we say, well, this must be good, this must be right because, boy, it produced this fruit or produced this. And then we back into it and say, well, where does the church fit into it? Well, how does the church – I, I want to reverse that. And in reversing that, I first – last week we, we laid these parameters in discussing, okay, there's, there's, the church has an exclusive role because God is exclusive in nature. And beginning with him, and his beginning with God and his exclusive revelation, down to the apostles, down to the church, 
the church now doesn't all of a sudden have a have a wide open, uh, you know, defined as man wants it to define. God has an exclusive purpose for the church, and He gives that description to to us and explains that to us. So, I want to walk through these and with this understand what are what are why I call the non-negotiables that I'm going to work with. What are the parameters, the missional parameters we as a church want to work with? And then from there, how do we fulfill the Great Commission with that? Here are some of the, the things that we'll be looking through, looking at in the, in the weeks to come. One, so last week, exclusive nature of the church, its revelation, how does it come down to us, and then how the, the church is a recipient of that. So we're laying the foundation. It gets a little bit weedy in the beginning to lay the foundation until we get to the, really the applicational parts of some of this. Two, today, church is the pillar of truth. When I really started to understand what it meant for the church to be the pillar of truth, I understood a lot better why missions cannot be separated from the church. You separate the pillar of truth that God entrusted the truth to the church to be guardian of truth, and then, well, you do missions over here on the side, you've got a problem, and we'll, we'll discuss what that looks like. September, next, next week, dangers of missional drifts, how in missions we tend to, tend to drift, drift towards poor theology, poor methodologies, and what that looks like, and why that's the case. And the further you drift away from the church, the further you drift away from, from, uh, from biblical parameters. Um, then the Great Commission mandate, primarily looking at Matthew 28 and doing so, and breaking down the, the Great Commission mandate. Not, then as you go, in other words, you break it down as you go, uh, obviously baptize, teach, make disciples, that one mandate that's in the Great Commission, breaking that down. Why send, who sends, and who is sent? If you answer this question right here, who sends, and you answer that question correctly, you understand the church. If you don't understand who sends, then the church loses all purpose and clearly defined because of its responsibility towards truth, only the church can be the one sending and affirming a missionary. Now, we'll discuss practical aspects of what that looks like in a missional environment that we have today, right? The goal here is absolutely not to, to establish a... A, a critical perspective on those believers who through missional agencies, I, I'll define paramissional organizations who fulfill ministries the, 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 the desire is not to pit myself against that, the only desire is me as a church, well where do I fit in and what am I obligated to do, then if I understand that correctly, then I'll know how to relate to the rest of the uh, uh, rest of those involved in, in, in ministry as you baptize and teach missions of church planning Making disciples, the ultimate objective of the, of the Great Commission. Sovereign missions and strategic missions, what does it look like in the church? What does is, what is sovereign missions look like? What does it mean to have God to, to approach missions with God's sovereignty in view? Uh, that has a lot to do with, you know, when you're talking about the, the motivational tools today, about where you go in missions, how do you choose a, a mission field, what are the unreached or the uh, unreached people groups and so forth. That's the guest speaker topic. So I'm not here on November 6th. We'll be uh, in Israel on that day. And then uh, healthy. I don't want to pigeonhole a speaker. I don't want to try to make it fit in my notes, and I want to find someone that can be uh, effective in, in a specific realm. And then finally, what does what does a healthy missions look like up here? Healthy missions. Then what does a healthy missionary look like? <clears throat> I'm going to, as a church, want to send someone. What does a healthy missionary look like? And what, is it, and what does a healthy paramissional organization look like that I'm going to work with? And kind of establish those parameters. So that gives you just a picture. We're not, I, I mentioned last week that I'm, I don't really, I'm not working with a PowerPoint. I'm just working through my notes. But this gives you a little picture of what we'll be 
uh, walking through in, in the weeks to come. So it really is my desire to walk through this. And I, whether there's five people here or 50 people here, it wouldn't really matter. It's helpful for me to walk through this lesson so I could get a better handle on, on even in a, as a church, how I want to structure our mission program and how we want to have a, a proper biblical philosophy, biblical theology of, of missions. So we should be on, I don't know exactly which page, because your page is a little bit different than mine, but the nature of the church defined, the nature of the church defined in, I'm on page five, but I'm not sure which page you're on. Page four. All right. Thank you. Now, it, if we're going to, if we're going to, to discuss the exclusive nature of the church, we need to understand what is the church. And I'm going to, my approach you'll quickly understand is to be quite technical in, the, in that question, and then I want the application of it to pour from a technical understanding of it. I say that because the first question that comes out when people talk about, about the church is you'll, you'll hear commentators talk about, well, I don't really want a, a very narrow interpretation of what the church means and what it means to be a church. Well, you have to begin with the narrow understanding of it before you broaden that uh, freely. And today, we broaden that concept of the church so broadly that it's washed out any parameters of what the church should look like. So, the nature of the church defined. I put down layers of cultural experiences, preconceived notions need to be peeled away to bring clarity to understand the church's intended singularity, which means we have the church has as a as a gathering. An intended purpose, and if I were to ask you, let me just ask a broad question: What are some of the things? If somebody asks you, Liberty Campus, you know, what's a church? What is the church? Where do we begin? It's a, it's a body of born again believers. A body of born again believers. Yeah. I mean, that's most basic. That's most basic. I say that we're not we're not talking about the church as an institution. Obviously, culturally, we've developed an institution. We developed doctrinal statements. We've developed membership roles, and those things are not bad. There's biblical parameters for some of that. But what I'm saying is that we're talking about the church in a in this very basic form, which is a gathering of believers. If you're on a mission field and you're you're, you're church planning, you're starting a church. The very that very first church is going to be a house church. It's going to be in a basement somewhere. It's going to be somewhere uh, in a home. It's obviously we're not talking about a an institution. Uh, like we're experiencing today, so I'm not I'm not narrowing the term to a a recognized institution, but it is a gathering of believers gathered for the purpose of um, teaching, making disciples. So, one of the commentators I mentioned earlier about the broader definitions. You, it's interesting to see how they're, they're understanding the church, and the one reason why we broaden so much, the, we broaden so much the definition of the church, that we no longer really understand what the church is. And if you and if you water down the concept of church so much, you water it down so much that it has no no more potency. You know, it's just a very broad understanding. I remember we were um, leasing a a a room, like something very simple like this, for a church young church meeting. And this church had not been constituted yet, so we were helping them establish bylaws and so forth and get a doctrinal statement. And we invited a, a young couple to the, to the church, and he, he came. He said, well, this is not a church. I mean, 
where's the church? You know, he thought we were the steeple down the road. You know, it was something that recognizes uh, that seem as a church. I think us culturally, we understand that's not what it is. But Dargon would suggest that a definition should include contemporary context and usage. Well, I understand what he's saying, but what, what risk do we run when we begin to define the church with a contemporary context or a contemporary usage? What does it mean by that? And what challenges does that represent for us when you begin interpreting the church through a contemporary or a contextual usage? I think you have to go back to the book of Acts and look at that as your guidebook, as your, as your model, and as uh, the uh, outgrowth of the, the church and, and its ministry. The book of Acts is the ground zero. The book of Acts is the ground zero. So what happens if you, if you contextualize the church or if you make it contemporary in its understanding? Are you going to say something maybe? It's going to change if you start evaluating it within this context. And actually what they normally do, I say they, usually when they commentaries start talking about the church that way, they do that because they want to they, – they have a, a – it's a means to an end. They have a different understanding of whether they want to take the church. So they don't want to limit the church. I should say it that way. They don't want to limit the church to a very narrow definition. And I understand what they're getting at, but I think you have to start with a, a narrow definition before you ask yourself, is it legitimate to broaden that definition? Uh, and part of the concepts that we're looking at here that are, that are challenging, understandably so, the idea of an invisible church, the idea of a universal church, well, how does that fit all in? Because if we're just part of a, of a broader universal church, then what's is this just a local manifestation of something greater? And if we have confusion over that, then obviously that's going to define how we view the church. And it will define if we if that defines how we view the church, it's going to change how we see the church's role in missions, and it's going to change how the view of the, the view of the church we have and how it upholds truth and then sends truth. So, very basic: the origin, the origins of the word church. The natural understanding of the word church within its biblical context is critical if we're going to understand the exclusive nature that the church is to have, or at least to appreciate its exclusive nature. The Greek usage, up and down in your notes here, the Greek usage of the word is ekklesia. We're familiar with that. It means to be called out. Kaleo, to call or to summons. And from this verb, the meaning of the word can be defined as to call out. Now, what I put down here is that what I find interesting with the word church is it, it is not originally a religious expression or religious terms. It was used, and I say that because we're going to go in, in, a, in a few minutes to, to Matthew 16, right, the first mention of the church. Well, the first mention of the church, Peter's understanding of what he heard when Christ said, I'll build my church, is predicated upon what he knew about that word church, right, because he's not defining it in Matthew 16. It's not a religious term. It was actually a common Greek term that was used. The uses I put down in secular Greek helps provide background as to what the word meant to New Testament believers. Though the word church today is specifically used as a religious term, that was not the case in secular Greek where it was used to describe a visible assembly of citizens that had been summoned to gather. So the word in its, in its purest form or in its original form was de- described to use, um, and it's used that way I think three times in scripture, in a, in a secular fashion if you want to call it that. But it's used to describe a visible assembly of citizens that are summoned to gather together. So interesting to use that definition to they're summoned. 
to gather. And of course, it's um, up and down that the, the Greek concordance will reveal. You'll see the word ecclesia used 118 times in Scripture. Of those 118 times, three times is translated as a secular assembly, Acts 19, 32, 39, 41, and once as an assembly of God's firstborn children in Hebrews 12. The remainder, 114 times, is translated as church. So what I'm saying is that we, we see the first time in Matthew 16. So the first usage of the term, yes, it's used systematically in Scripture, but it's understood to be a gathering and a visible gathering. So from there, we, we, we shift over to an invisible church, and we shift over to a universal church, and we'll explain some of that. But I first want to see the most basic understanding of how the term is used. I'll put down in your notes here that the term church is used in the following ways. It's used as a reference to a specific church. It's used to describe a nonspecific assembly. It's used to designate a group of individual churches. It's used in reference to a non-specified number of churches, and it's used speaking for all individual churches. Other terms that are used for local assembly, see you notes there as well, it's called sometimes a flock of God, the house of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar of truth in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The context of 1 Timothy 3, when he talks about pillar of truth, what is the context of 1 Timothy what, are, what instruction are we getting in First Timothy when he calls the church in First Timothy 3 the pillar of truth? What's the context? Instruction for elders. Instruction for elders. It's how you should behave in the house of God. So it's not ambiguous. It's, it's very specific and it's very structured. It's how you should behave in the house of God, the church being the pillar of truth. And then he gives elders to the, to, that are entrusted with that truth and how to... Um, defend that truth and care for it and then proclaim it. So I put down here um, a couple comments or a couple observations. First of all, the word ecclesia is always used in the same way in Scripture. What I mean by that is never defined differently. It doesn't mean that it's, there's not context to it in different places. But when we use the word church, we don't have a shift in definition that says, okay, here I'm talking about this church, but now I'm, I'm going to redefine church over here. Church is used in the same way uh, throughout Scripture, and never is it defined differently uh, in terms of giving us a, a new definition. So there's obviously uh, – it never pauses to indicate there's a new, a new nuanced understanding of the word. So I think when we, been, we begin there is that the initial understanding – and let's go to Matthew 16 because this is the promise made to Peter that we're going to go to. And it's, it's, under this, it's, it's a controversial text. I don't mind controversy. It doesn't mean that I got the answers for it, but I don't mind, I don't mind it being controversial. There's been a lot written about this, about this text, and I preached on this about a year ago um, and um, took some of, my, some of my notes from that as well. Okay, so why am I laying this out? I'm laying this out because my first question is when Peter is hearing Christ say, I'm going to build my church, what does he hear? Is he hearing, oh, he's, he's gathering an invisible church? Is he gathering a, a, a body of believers? When he's telling Peter, I'm going to build my church, he, he hears the only word that he knew, his word ecclesia, is it called out, summons a group of people that are there to gather. So even though we can broaden the understanding of Matthew 16, which is the first mention of church, we could broaden our understanding of it. I, I have a hard time imagining Peter didn't hear 
Christ say, I'm going to summon believers to gather as a visible congregation because that's the only thing he understood out of that word at that point in time. Now, again, it doesn't mean there's not a universal church concept, but I'm saying in its initial understanding and usage. So Matthew 16, verse 18 there's two things about this, and we'll, we'll show the second, the second mention of it here in just a moment as well. So here, there's a promise made to Peter. Um, back up just a little bit. Verse 18, obviously, is a key passage, but let's take verse 17. So Matthew 16, 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commands the disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So why why are we why are we taking why are we laboriously describing what he means by church? Because if you back up in missions today, the, the issue we're going to have in missions is we, we back into missions. And by backing into missions is we, we, we take missions that has a very broad understanding and a very non-restricted understanding of what the church is. And that, that impacts everybody who wants to serve the church. Well, I'm serving the church. What do you mean by church? Well, I'm serving the greater kingdom. So I want to be a missionary. Well, I want to be a missionary, but... You know, I want to serve the church. Now, I don't want to limit myself to a visible congregation. I want to serve the greater church, the, the invisible church, the greater body. And then you, you're involved in, you know, uh, ministry that grows the church. And so there's a very ambiguous understanding of church. And if it doesn't begin with what Peter understood here, I mean, the, the, the idea that the promise made to Peter is one that's yes, involves the the entirety of the body of Christ, but it begins with him understanding that he's going to raise and call out, and we'll see that in Pentecost. And then he's going to tell Peter to do what? Go feed my flock, not an invisible flock. Feed my flock. And then Peter's going to take that. He's going to turn that over to the church in First Timothy, and then in First Timothy he's going to have uh, them telling the believers, he's going to pass that on to the church and pass that responsibility on to the elders to carry on the torch of truth. So it's, it's important that we not be confused in all the discussions about church, all the discussions about uh, visible nature and visible nature of church, that we understand that being part of a local assembly is what was, it was part of the promise that was made to Peter. And so it is, it is crucial. It is critical. I understand in a younger, in a younger generation where we have a harder time tying ourselves to institutions because we don't want something institutionalized. We want something more organic that kind of flows naturally. I understand that. But nevertheless, being part of a visible assembly was exactly what uh, Christ was describing to, to Peter. So I put down when he made his promise to Peter, uh, a text that's been a battleground for, for, for many years. I, I mentioned this in, when I, again, I, I preached on this about, I think about a year ago. Maybe maybe two years ago now, but I find it interesting. Da, one of the debates around this this text is, of course, whose identity. Verse eighteen, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of of Hades or gates of hell will not prevail against it. Of course, the 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 struggle historically is around whose 
who's the what identity is that? When he says, you know, on this rock I build my church, he's, who's he talking about? What is he talking about? Uh, Dargon says that if it wasn't for the Catholic position that Peter was the first pope, the Protestants wouldn't have kicked back and said, well, no, it's not Peter because Peter is not the first pope and it can't be Peter. Therefore, it must be something else. And if it wasn't for that debate, that historical debate, we wouldn't have been skewed towards believing that it wasn't applied to Peter. And I, I think he probably has some, some legitimate um, observations there to be made. So the key, the key identity around, around the rock upon which Christ will build his church. I, I found a book. I found you buy these books. That's one thing about dangerous to Amazon. You go click, click, and you got it. Um, then thinking later, I really need it for those two pages I want to read. But, like I said, um, I found it interesting that there is a, a a book on the on the history of this of this question. But then my notes is tracing the history of the exegesis of this text from 1781 to 1965. He broke down the different views and positions throughout this time period, and the author shows that one-third believed the rock was Peter, another third believed it was the truth of the gospel, and another third believed it refers to Christ. I'm thinking, wow, here we are. A year later, we're still debating the same thing and the same, the same way, and they're split evenly in those three positions. So I'm not going to suggest that I'm going to clear it up for you and that uh, there will be no more debate after this evening. But I would suggest, and here's a few observations about that, that the promise being made to Peter is one where he will be instrumental in shepherding the newly called out church at Pentecost. Meaning this was a um, not just a, a prophetic passage about the Pentecost to come and the first church and Peter's responsibility towards that, but I believe that he's referring to Peter as being instrumental in the early church. Now obviously as a Catholic would say that he's a pope, but but that he's instrumental in that. So a few observations that have to do with that I put down here. Uh, first, I put down that Matthew 16, Christ is asking Peter, who do you say that I am? Verse 15, to which Peter answers, you are the Christ. And as Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, so will Christ acknowledge that Peter is the rock. So I guess one of the authors is saying, you know, in reality, what makes sense is that when, when Peter's asked the question, who I am, and he says, you're the Christ, and then his and Christ's response is one where um, in verse he, he tells him, you know, that you don't you know this because it's been in verse seventeen has been revealed to you. Then he says, "I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." He says, "Actually, the play on words only makes sense if one, if both Jesus and the Christ are the same, and Peter and the rock are the same. That play on word makes sense." Uh, so Christ being, of course, the uh, the cornerstone. Peter is told here that he will be a living stone in the building of his church, of which Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Uh, Peter references the living stone later in First Peter when he states that Christ is the chief cornerstone to which all believers, not just Peter, are living stones. So, one, I think, I think the play on words here is him recognizing that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, and him saying Peter is the rock is the play on words that makes sense in this passage, even though some people say that the play on words is that, of course, Christ is the rock, or the message of the rock, or the gospel is the rock, and there's some, some debate around that. But I, I have a hard time, again, I have a hard time imagining knowing the, the basic understanding of what the word ecclesia meant, that Peter understood it differently than what the original word meant, meaning the promise of a called-out visible church 
of which he's going to have the responsibility to go and feed. That's from here. What does it say? From here, after this event, he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And later, he's going to tell Peter what? What, is, what does he ask Peter to do later on? Will you feed my flock? Feed my flock? Feed my flock? So I think all that is in the same uh, continuation of thought. So first thing is that play on words that uh, would be consistent with that too. Uh, put down the second, the word ecclesia is not foreign to Peter, who heard Christ say he was going to call out his people in the visible assembly of which Peter would have care to feed. This passage marks a critical turning point in the life of Christ. As, as I mentioned, that he's getting ready to leave. And from that time on, Jesus is preparing his disciples, and he's preparing Peter in particular to uh, care for and feed the flock. So I think the statement here is also Christ preparing Peter for the task that sets before him, and we see him respond to that in, uh, in, in the book of Acts. Like we even saw this morning, uh, Acts chapter 3 and 4, and he comes out preaching with power and preaching with authority and taking that lead role in, in the church. Third, I put down that Peter speaks to the gathered believers in Acts chapter 2, which serves as a model for the church to this day. He says he later refers to Pentecost as the beginning. In Acts 11, the Pentecost is mentioned as the beginning, meaning the passage here in Matthew 16 is like a prophetic passage, a prophetic text that anticipates the Pentecost and the church, the founding of the church, and Peter's responsibility with that. So, and, and Peter uh, later on, refers to that Pentecost as the beginning, so uh, consistent with the responsibility that was given to him. So, when you when you look at these, I think one can um, understand and see the promise made to Peter was not just a an ambiguous expression, but it was a specific request, a specific mandate that you are going to be instrumental in the founding of the church at Pentecost. I'm going to ask you to feed my church. So. Number two, I put down in my notes simply this. It says there's a, there's a promise of a visible church. More than something just random, um, it was rather a structured, organized, purposeful congregation. So Peter is, as I mentioned, is going to be foundational. I think one thing that's, that's, that's very, very telling, now I fly through the notes. That's why I have notes in, in, in detail, so I can skip over the parts that, are, uh, that I want to, and it's kind of speed up in some areas as well, because we're going to run out of time. And so, I think we're good, but 740, 742, so I end around 6. The second passage, what's the second passage where the church is mentioned? What's Matthew 18? We, we reference Matthew 18 a lot for what? Church discipline. Church discipline. So you have the first mention of the church, Matthew 16, telling Peter, I will build my church. Second reference to church is Matthew 18. Now, what do we learn about Matthew 18? What's the instruction about Matthew 18? Church discipline, what specifically is what specific guidelines are given to the church at that point or to believers? What do you how do you discipline someone? What do you need to do? Go to them individually, you can't reconcile, they're unrepentant, then what do you do? Take two or three with you. Take two or three with you. At what point do you finally it says what? Remove them from what? Remove them from the church. So the first mention of the church is Peter, I will build my church. Second mention of the church in Matthew 18 is, hey, if someone is not uh, is unrepentant, remove them from the church. So 
between those two events, closely related in time even, there's no new description where all of a sudden Matthew 18 becomes a very, you know, Matthew 18 is obviously a literal church, is obviously a visible church. You can't remove somebody from an invisible church. So early in our description of the church, everything is very understood to be very visible and very concrete. So when, when, when as, as a believer, when you're, when you understand the necessity to be involved in church, it's not in, in a greater sense. It's not in an invisible church. It's in a very tangible body of Christ. One author, I forget who, who it was, said, you don't join a church, you submit to a church. I'm like, wow, you can say that today. Eesh, that, sounds too, that sounds too strong. But he, I think, goes back a long time, so he can say that back in the day. You don't join a church, you submit to a church. And so that, that understanding of what that looks like. So I put down here two things I want to, to address. One, the promise of a visible church. We mentioned that in Matthew 18. Two things that we often hear. One, we hear the term invisible church being used, and we, we hear the term universal church. Honestly, historically, it's, uh, historically it's, it's not a modern concept. You can say, well, that was a modern construct that we can throw away. It's been around for a long time, and, there's, and understandably so, because, the past, because there's times where the word church is being used in a broader sense. And so the first thing I'll just address is the invisible church, which really is a, a term that, in my view, does a lot of disservice to the church. To use, a con- to use the term invisible church, there is no such thing as an invisible church, no matter how you look at it. I don't care if it's in a local form or a global form, there's no such thing as an invisible church. Uh, the church is never and can never be invisible. Each individual church is a church, complete in every way, in that locality as it's local, yes. So perhaps... Um, this idea of a uh, church that is complete in every way, even in its, in its local form, is well understood by the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. So I just mentioned the two verses here in your notes. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2 Corinthians 1, 1 introduction. It says, the church of God which is at Corinth. So the church of God which is at Corinth, which is present at Corinth, which is visible at Corinth. But he uses the term the church of God. So he doesn't say the local church of Corinth. He says the church of God which is at Corinth. So in other words, he's describing in a broad sense a the church, but the, that church at Corinth is the um, complete church even in its local manifestation. Second expression in the term universal church, which is one that we probably use a little more uh, commonly. And I'm, I'm not suggesting we can't use those terms. I'm not suggesting they're inappropriate. What I am suggesting is that they're used too often as a, as a cop-out, not the right word, but it's used to kind of uh, diminish the, the, uh, the power or the emphasis that it was designed to be uh, given to a local manifestation and a local gathering of the church. So I put down in my notes here in terms of, of uh, universal church as the term universal church is commonly used and can easily be promoted as more important than the local church. It is important that the universal church not be viewed it's important that the universal church not be viewed as the sum of all individual churches. Important. And what he's saying, you know, the, the local church the, the universal church, is the idea of a universal church is not the sum of all individual churches. Because if you believe that, then basically you don't have to be part of a individual church as long as you're part of the sum of the churches. And somehow that will eclipse the that local visible gathering into a greater universal church. I I use I was discussing this with with uh, Jane because she's teaching also on uh, 
she's Janie to me. She's just Jane to you, I guess. But um, one one comparison I thought was helpful. It'd be like perhaps it'd be like describing. There's two things about that question about the universal church. One, it'd be like describing yourself as a citizen of the world without being a citizen of a country. I mean, you, you don't you don't identify yourself as a citizen of the world, which you are. You're part of humanity. You're part of a, uh, of humanity in this, in this broad sense. But you identify yourself as a citizen of a specific country. And the laws that you follow and then your existence is related is in relation to a specific country. So there's, there's no situation, there's no concept where somehow we relate to a universal church without going, without first identifying through a local gathering of believers. And again, going back to what I said right in the beginning, when by local gathering, I don't mean an institutional form. But we do have to be careful what we mean by church, because when you're on a mission field, now they're gonna, you know, some people have a very loose definition of church, or any two people gather together. Well, there's a church. Remember one mission? I won't, I won't name them because I won't be critical of them because they they do good work. But they want to they want to plant, you know, 100 churches in France by X year, which is good 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 goal. Except what the the definite church was, you know, there's little house Bible study groups that were meeting and they were talking those off. Well, those are churches gathering. Well, they weren't structured in such a way where they were moving and growing towards discipleship, leadership, elders, everything else we see in First Timothy. So we can't have a very loose definition of what the church means. But at the same time, we're not talking about institutional life. Are you part of a denomination? Are you part of a Baptist church? Are you part of a Methodist church? We're not talking about that. But we identify with a gathering of believers, and I think the citizen of the world versus the citizen of a country kind of gives a, a, a picture of that. Put down the notes as well. There, there, there are details, and I know there, every one of these words are, are weighted for a reason and are here for a reason, right? Uh, Erickson says that the church is not a sum of com- or composite of the individual local groups. Instead, the whole is found in one place, which means a church, as we gather as a church, we're the complete church. We're not incomplete. We're not part of, yes, we're part of the body of Christ. And I think the body of Christ is probably a more accurate and the more helpful term. Someone said, too, there's two different terms. There is the soteriological term, which refers to salvation, which is the body of Christ. And then there's a church term that is, is what we're, we're talking about here. So, yes, there is a, a broader body of Christ that we're a part of, but um, we're part of the church implies being part of a local gathering of believers of like-minded of like-minded believers so i do have a little bit in your notes here and it's kind of helpful simply this is that usually most and i was picking jane's brain about this too because going through her book and i've read the book as well but i asked her when we talk about the universal church what's the first the primary text they go to are found in ephesians primary text you go to for universal church found in Ephesians. What's the purpose of Ephesians? What's the message of Ephesians? Why does he address the idea of a broader church than just that local uh, assembly in Ephesians? Trying to see if I have some of the... Do you think that Paul had the idea that the local church that he was familiar with, health plan or whatever, was uh, a foretaste or looking forward of what it would be uh, in a larger sense. You see what I'm saying? Well, I think in Ephesians, 
when Ephesians, when he addresses the, what we would consider probably passages that are key for universal, ide- universal church ideas, he addresses it in Ephesians with that idea saying, I got one verse here in chapter 3, verse 6. He says the, the idea that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So what he's picturing here for the believers is that there's, in this, there, he's trying to encourage them in this local congregation to understand that we're all Gentiles and Jews alike a part of the body of Christ. That's where he addresses the idea of universal church. He's not taking that. He's trying to address it. And who is he applying it to? Well, he's applying it to that local congregation. He's not applying it to, to an invisible body. He's not applying it to a universal body. He's trying to help these local believers within that local congregation know how to incorporate Jews and Gentiles alike. So the whole application, the whole understanding of it comes from, the, uh, from that gathering of believers. So... You cannot understand, and I put down somewhere, I think maybe I put down my notes probably somewhere here, but it, you cannot understand um, a broader body of Christ or a larger universal church without seeing it through the lens of the local church. The local church are, is the lens through which we understand that there's a greater body of believers, and we rejoice in that. Of course we rejoice in that. And every time that we hear a, a missions report, the, how encouraged are we to see what God is doing through local, other local congregations? Those congregations might be very simple gatherings in someone's basement, hiding from someone else. It might be very simple, but we see them as part of the greater body of Christ, and that is a subject of great rejoicing. But it, it, it's because we see it through the lens of a local gathering. So look at the the... There's a few other things that I think are, are, are helpful um, in that, so you can read through that. But I wanted to, to build – what I'm trying to do is, is build our understanding of what the church is. Because at the end product, when you come at the end here, you want to understand what a healthy missionary is, what a healthy – uh, how, do you, how do you partner and work with other prayer mission organizations? What's the sovereign mission? What's, if you don't understand from the beginning the expectation of what the church is and everything else becomes very blurry at the end. So I know we're starting out out of the gate with a very narrow understanding because if we don't have that at the end over here, it's going to be anything and everything goes because we're all part of a greater body and we're all growing the greater body and that everything, else, everything else gets lost. So that's why we're starting out at the gate with a clear, narrow, I'm going to call narrow, some call it a very, um, uh, not narrow is the right word, but a very literal interpretation of what it is. But I'm I'm beginning there because if we don't have that, then then we, if you deviate this much here, then we'll end up this far out. And then you don't know how to back into, well, why are we doing what we're doing and how does that, what does that look like? So I put down here, I think we have a few minutes. I'd like to really do this part right here. Mm. Yeah, I think. Trying to see how far I'm going to go on this. Look at the the chapter where it says the perfect design for an imperfect church. And I'll take I'll take a few minutes there. We don't have time to finish all the what causes resistance to this idea. What causes us to resist this this notion where in in, in Christianity as a whole. So let me read just a little bit of what I put down here. It says, the perfect design for an imperfect church. And the reason why I say this is because the, the, the first thing that people push back on when you talk about local assembly 
is the imperfections of a local gathering. As if there's some greater perfected invisible church, but the local gathering is full of imperfections. It is. It's kind of like supporting. I support marriage, just not my marriage. You know, it's like I, I love marriage. It's a wonderful thing, but my marriage has this problem. But understandably so. It's easy to look at the church and say, wow, we're, because we're, we're just weak. We're fallible. We're every, I, I, I get that. And sometimes people say, well, you know, the church and, uh, and is it the church trying to pull its weight of authority? It's nothing to do with that. It really isn't. Whenever the church here asks us to return to oversee the school, that asks if we'd consider it. We were in a, finishing up a church plant, and we are like, well, you know, do we start over somewhere else? Do we? And there's a lot of factors. It wasn't one factor that brought us back. But I'll tell you what, one parameter, my wife and I sat down and said from the beginning, we are convictional that the church and our church plays a role in directing our paths. We're just convictional about it. I, can't, I just can't tell you how I'm just so wired that way because I cannot imagine. So it's going to be, well, I do whatever I want, and, and where does God establish that authority in our lives that we can be accountable to? And, it's, and people are so afraid. They're so afraid to go to the church because somehow they're afraid the church is going to keep them from doing what they want to do. It's so well, that's not how the church functions. We don't go to the elders and, and, and seek advice in regards of where that church is at and say, well, you know, uh, someone who gives you proper counsel is not someone that's going to give you a thumbs up and thumbs down. They're going to say, well, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? Are your giftings in this area? Have you tested your giftings? And you, you help them process what they feel God's led them to do. It's not them sitting there, well, tell me, what, tell me what to do. Tell me where to go. But submitting yourself under the protection of a body of believers and letting them affirm your giftings, that's a blessing in all of its imperfections. Because when you break it down, you break it down to faces and names, right? I'm going to trust that guy. And I'm going to you know, trust my future. I really want to do this. What if, I tell, what if they tell me I'm not ready? I want to go. Well, let God work through that because, yes, the, the church is, is God's perfect design for an imperfect church. So, yes, we can look at it from a human's perspective and say, well, I mean, if we do that, if we were to do this, I mean, this sounds so idealic, uh, idealistic, you know, if we were to follow this, well, you know, would anything get done because the church is too slow or this or that, and God's called me, so I'm going to go. So, so what we're saying is that God promised to build his church, but somehow, boy, he just gets so frustrated. That's where we come in some of the sovereign mission questions. We, God is so frustrated because he just wished the church would just do his job. And I've got, my, I've got my, my missionaries I'm calling out. They're sitting there in the pews, and they're ready to go, but the church is holding them back. Wow. So God can't do his work. God somehow has got he's working one hand tied behind his back. And he instituted the most beautiful church to perform, to act as a church, and we're afraid that somehow it's going to keep us from doing what we want to do. That's just not what. That's not how it works. And so whenever I was saying right in the beginning, whenever we sat there, and Jane and I said, "Listen, we're at a crossroads. Here's the time." And the church didn't say, "Hey, you guys are coming back in six months." They say, "Hey, would you guys? Is this something you would consider? Is the timing right?" Is it ministry-wise? Well, they didn't know that at the same time Jane's mom needed to be cared for. My son was a senior, and we were down to not have enough money to even buy a plane ticket for him getting home, so we had to get support. But we just going all these things going through our mind. And 
one of the major pieces was, is the Lord using the church? How does the Lord use the church to direct our paths? And we, we answered that. We says we met with him. I figure at one point the church is going to say, no, we don't want Jeff back here. I figure it's no, just because one person says, keep Jeff over there. No, they, they kept him going down the road. And, and, and here we are now serving the Lord. And if the Lord sends us back there, we'll be glad to go in whatever capacity we can serve. But it's, a, it's amazing how we're, we're so afraid that somehow God didn't know what he was doing when he did the church because we see the imperfections of the church. And as if God can't, God is held back and can't work through that. The church has been perfectly equipped and has the power to fulfill its missional mandate. We must be convinced of that. We must be convinced of that. Christ's promise to Peter, thankfully, was conditional upon God's faithfulness and not man's. The God needs me mentality, which leads some to believe that if man is disobedient, then God's plan would have is frustrated or falls apart. I quote one author here that says, God does his part and man does his part approach. God has chosen to use individuals to fulfill his purposes, but he depends on no one individual's fidelity to fulfill his purposes. And I put down this about the church as well. I says, and so it is with the church. That though God has designed and equipped the church to answer the call of the Great Commission, he depends on no one church to do so. What does that mean? It means, yes, a church can be found unfaithful. A church can be found wanting in being the church that's called to be. And if you're in that kind of church, well, hopefully you're not there because you're here. But if you're in a church that's not a biblical church, then... That's, it's not just a matter of are they answering the mission the way I want them to answer it because people, you know, I want missions done this way and the church is not doing this and we're not. No, but I'm saying if we're not, if you're not in the biblical church, then yes, God's hand of blessing is taken away from those who no longer teach the truth, no longer teach the gospel, and don't answer the call. But if you're in a in a, in a biblically based church, then let God use that to fulfill His purposes through you. And it might be a little country church. And that's not a derogatory term. I love little country churches, but it might be a little country church, and all you have is, is, a, is a pastor who knows little about working overseas, but humbly submitting yourself says, do you feel, I feel God leading me to be in missions. Would, is that something you would support? Do you feel I've got those qualities in my life? Would you mentor me? One thing Pastor Ali told me years ago, because he didn't know much about the French, but he says, you know, people's needs are the same no matter where you go. They need the gospel, and, the, and the, the struggles you're going to face are people struggling, and there are people struggling, and there's, there's unique aspects of that in the certain cultures, and he said, I understand that. But he was able to encourage me in those areas that we had commonality in ministry and encourages in that, even though he wasn't familiar with France, wasn't familiar with the other pieces. So all that comes, comes to play in a, in a beautiful way. So I put down here, and, and, and we'll finish with this. God is in no way limited by human deficiencies. I must believe. I've always had, my ministry is, is, is my, my life ministry and ministry has been built on understanding God is not limited by human deficiencies, whether individual or congregational. He does, however, call on the church, as he does on every believer, to be to obedience by joining him and carrying the good news of the gospel to the uttermost. Believers should be deeply committed to God's perfect plan for an imperfect church. It should come as no surprise that something divinely ordained should face human resistance. And there's three areas, and we'll look at these next time. Three areas here that I list that 
um, are the primary areas of resistance, why we resist the local visible church involved in this. And I put down the area of pragmatism, experientialism, and individualism. Yes, Mr. Ashton James. Uh, about 40 years ago, Timberlake was supporting a missionary in Africa. And uh, that missionary was not really being directed by us. Uh, I was on the mission committee, but um, we found out that he had a dog kennel on his property, and it was air-conditioned because it's in Africa. <laughs> and well, we don't, we no longer support that. Um, <laughs> I had to put that in, folks. I had to get it in. I don't choose how we end this class, and it's going to end on the. And that's going to be the one thing you remember of this evening. It's going to be the dog kennel story. All right, folks. You shouldn't be talking about me. <laughs> All right, folks. Let's close in prayer. Father, I even thinking about this morning about the the unity and the encouragement through unity of the body of Christ. Well, we're gathered here, Lord, because we love you. You instituted the church, and you did so knowing the frailty of man and the imperfections of man. And yet, Lord, the promise hinges on your faithfulness, not mine. And yes, I'm called to be faithful, and yes, I'm called to obey. But Lord, may we just gain a renewed love for the church the one that we see, the one that we live and breathe. And we're called to love, but not the invisible one across the world. We're, loved, we're, learned, we're called to love the one across the pew. So, Lord, I, I just thank you for that reminder today. I thank you for the promise made to Peter. And as we walk through this, Lord, that we might just be encouraged, and I would say even emboldened in our desire, Lord, to to further the cause of Christ and to advance the kingdom. Lord, there's so much more to do in missions. There's so so much more I'd like to see done, Lord, but may we just build on a on a biblical foundation to do so. I thank you, Lord, for our time this evening. In the name we pray. Amen.